كلا إنها كلمة هو قائلها ومن ورائهم برزخ إلى يوم يبعثون إذا نفخ في الصور فلا أنساب بينهم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد uh, welcome to our 10th and our last uh, episode in the series of the Barzakh. And in uh, today's lesson, I promised there's going to be extended Q&A. But before we get there, there are two miscellaneous topics that we need to do. The first of them, I delayed to the very end. And the second one, I just added on today, just FYI for myself and all of us, just benefit, inshallah. The first one, I delayed to the very end because it is a question that Frankly, for most of us, it is one of the most important questions of the entire issue of the barzakh. And that is, can we meet the souls of the deceased? And I delayed this question to the very end. Now that we've covered all of the issues of the barzakh, now the issue comes, can the souls of the living meet with the souls of the dead? And also... Do the souls of the dead meet with one another? Or are they completely separate and disconnected from one another? There is nothing in the Quran that confirms or denies this entire realm. Explicit. There is nothing that is explicit about the arwah meeting one another. However, some ulama have derived implicit evidences. They have derived indirect allusions to the meeting of the soul. So for example in Surah An-Nisa verse 69 Surah An-Nisa 69 وَمَن يُطْعِ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ فَأُولَٰئِكَ مَعَ الَّذِينَ أَنْعَمَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِمْ مِنَ النَّبِيِّينَ وَالصِّدِّقِينَ وَالشُّهَدَاءِ وَالصَّالِحِينَ وَحَسُنَ أُولَٰئِكَ رَفِيقًا Okay? Those who obey Allah and His Messenger shall be with the ones whom Allah has favored, the Nabiyyin the Siddiqeen, the Shuhada, and the Salihin, and what a great companionship. What a great group to be with. Ibn al-Qayyim writes in his book, Kitab al-Ruh, that this being with the group, this being with them, is something that occurs in this world, and in the Barzakh, and in Jannah. The being with them, فَأُولَاكَ مَعَ الَّذِينَ أَنْعَمَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ مِنَ نَبِيِّنَ وَالصِّدِّقِينَ وَالشُّهَدَاءِ وَالصَّالِحِينَ So to be with all of these, it is going to happen in this world and in the barzakh and in the hereafter. And that is because a person is with those whom he loves. Al-mar'u ma'aman ahab. End quote of Ibn al-Qayyim. And other scholars as well have derived from the verse of Ali Imran that... Don't think the ones who have died in the way of Allah are dead. No, they are alive with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They are looking forward to the good news, to the bashara from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they are waiting for those that lam bihim. They haven't yet come to them. The fact that they are waiting, the fact that they're anticipating the next group that hasn't yet arrived indicates what? That they are going to meet the arwah. Okay? So this is, I would say, a very good indirect evidence for this regard. However, both of these evidences deal with the arwah of the dead meeting with the arwah of the dead. There is nothing about the arwah of the living meeting with the arwah of the dead. 
right? So both of these evidences are indirect and they are not explicit. But it is especially the, the ayah of yastabshiruna bin ni'matillahi that they are uh, waiting for the good news from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they are happy waiting for those that lam yalhaqu bihim that they have left them behind and they're waiting for them to come so this is a very clear indirect indication however there is an explicit hadith that solves this issue and alhamdulillah it is authentic unlike yesterday's long discussion we had to go over alhamdulillah it is an authentic hadith in the sunan of Amin nisai narrated from abu hurair radiyallahu ta'ala an that it is a long hadith that when the time of death comes for the believer this is from the prophet sallam abu hurair is narrating that the malaika of mercy come with silk garments we have done all of this the, the malaika say come out radiyatan mardiya ila ruhillahi wa rayhan we've done all of this they will go up they will come down the angels will praise them etc etc the angels will say what beautiful perfume then this is a phrase i did not do when we began because i wanted to delay it here then fayatuna bihi arwah almu'minin they will bring this new ruh to the arwah of the believers so the new soul will meet the soul of the believers falahum ashaddu farahan bihi min ahadikum bighaibihi yaqdumu alayhi when the believers meet this newcomer listen to this they are happier than when one of you receives a long awaited visitor coming back from a journey how happy you are suppose your son has gone your mother has gone your daughter has gone your wife has gone when they come back you are so happy the prophet said the believers are happier when they see their new friend the new mu'min coming from this world that they haven't met for so long they are happier than this this is a very interesting hadith so the arwah of the dead ask is this soul living or dead dead but he is newly dead huh newly minted dead mashallah he is the freshest coming from this dunya they ask him about what happened with so and so what happened with so and so and this is amazing which means what they are fully cognizant they're fully aware they have a monitor their list where is so and so what's the news so they want to hear the news of what's happening in this dunya and this also shows that they have no contact with this dunya other than what's going to happen now Okay, they have no specific means of contact. Now, the issue of the dead hearing and whatnot, as we said, it's a controversial one. And inshallah, maybe they probably hear. But even if they hear, they are most likely just aware of the presence of their, of their deceased, as we said. Uh, sorry, not of the deceased, of the relatives when they come to visit them. It's not as if you have a two-way conversation. Okay, nonetheless, this hadith is clear. The mayyit, the new mayyit, the newly dead person, we should say, is going to update the others about what has happened with so and so so they're asking where is my relative where is he meaning he's not a, he's not dead yet right we're waiting for him to come so they will say uh, some of them will say let him rest he has just exited the misery of this world you know, subhanAllah, when a long-lost visitor comes, right? The relatives surround him, buzz, this and that. One of them says, man, he's just come back. Let him freshen up and go, right? Same thing in the akhirah happening. 
Okay? Same thing in the Akhirah. Others will say, guys, chill, relax. The guys just come from the grief of this dunya. Let him acclimatize before you jump up and gang up on him. This shows us the arwah of the deceased are eagerly waiting for news from the world of the living. And when any time a new person comes, they surround him, they gang up on him until somebody feels merciful. Guys, just calm down. He's just come. You know, let him acclimatize. Then the man will say, the mayyit will say, you asked about so-and-so, قَدْمَاتْ أَمَا أَتَاكُمْ The person you asked me about, he's already dead, hasn't he come here? Where is he? And they say, oh, this means, قَدْ بِهِ إِلَىٰ أُمِّهِ الْهَاوِيَةِ This means, he has gone down there, not up here. And this is an indication that the one who goes to عَذَابُ Qabr is disconnected from speaking and talking, which is totally understandable. They have their own issues to deal with. They don't have the luxuries of meeting and interacting and greeting. That is for the believers. That is for the arwah of the salihin, of the awliya, of the muttaqin. That they have the luxury of interacting, of chillaxing, relaxing, getting up to date. They have that. But as for the others, no. And so when they ask about so-and-so, the, new, the newly mayyit, the newly mayyit, huh? the newly deceased, we should invent a term for this, right? Uh, the one who's just passed away. He's like, what do you mean? That guy passed away way before me. Where is he? And then they realize that if he's not with them, and he's not in the land of the living, there's only one other place he's gone. And that is, فَأُمُّهُ هَاوِيَةِ As in the Quran, so he has gone to the down place, meaning the place that is not over there. And then the hadith goes on about the kafir and the adab that comes after him. So this is an explicit evidence, authentic from the words of the Prophet ﷺ, that affirms the souls of the living, sorry, the souls of the dead, are interacting with the souls of the dead. Is that clear? Right? Now, is there any evidence that the souls of the living interact with the souls of the dead? That is a question. Does anybody have any evidence off the top of your heads? The what? Excellent point here. Our brother mentions one such evidence, and that is the Prophet ﷺ said, Whoever sees me in a dream has truly seen me because the shaytan does not impersonate me. This is an explicit affirmation that the souls of the living can interact with the soul of the Prophet ﷺ in particular. Excellent. Any other evidence? that the souls of the living can see the souls of the deceased. Evidence. This is, we're going to get to it, but that's not an evidence from the Quran and Sunnah. It is stories that are mentioned. <laughs> evidence number two, Isra wal Miraj. And to the best of my knowledge, I could not think of any other than these two. So, mashallah, you got the two. If you mention any other, we can add it here and I will credit you, inshallah ta'ala. We all benefit from one another. I could not think of any third one. Two evidences come to mind. The first of them, seeing the Prophet ﷺ in dream. The second of them, the Prophet ﷺ in Isra wal Mi'raj. Now, in this case, it wasn't a dream. 
he was in a state of wakefulness. But what is the key point here? He interacted with the arwah of the prophets. The arwah of the prophets, he spoke with them. They were fully cognizant of what's going on. They're asking him about the jal, the day of judgment. We talked about that in our previous lessons, right? They're saying what's going on. What, has he come yet? This and that. They're questioning him about the situation in this dunya. So they're fully cognizant. And the Prophet is fully alive. And they are having a proper conversation with each other, right? So these are clear evidences that the people of this world can interact with the deceased. Now, as for the evidences from the stories of the Sahaba and Tabi'un and from the stories of our ancestors and the Salihin and even us, this is something that Ibn Qayyim and others say is tawatratil ummah. This is something that every generation mentions without exception. And I am positive even in this audience, we have many people who have interacted with their deceased who have gone on. They have seen them in a dream and something poignant, something personal, something very relevant. They know that this is something that they have interacted with the relative or the deceased and something that gives them a sense of sakina and peace. And our brother mentioned something from the Sahaba. And there's not just this, there are thousands upon thousands of narrations, especially when the righteous ulama pass away. Their students write and they record, I saw him in a dream and this happened and I did this and I did that. And I can also mention personal stories, not that I want to go and get involved with this, but I myself have witnessed a number of times, even when my, one of my beloved teachers passed away, I saw a dream that was very vivid, and it was something that was very clear to me uh, what, what it was, and, and also relatives of mine and others. And this is something that every one of us who, um, I, mean, I think it is very common, that, that it's not something that is very rare. And Ibn Qayyim mentions this, and many scholars mention it. Now, a very important point here, though, a very important point. When you see a relative in a dream, me and you, the Prophet ﷺ said, if you see him in a dream, shaitan cannot take his form. What does this imply? It implies there is the potential or the possibility that shaitan can deceive somebody and pretend to be someone that the deceased Someone that the living person knows. Because the one person the shaitan cannot imitate is who? Is the Prophet wasallam. Therefore, because of this, we say, it is possible to see your deceased in a dream. And it is possible the deceased will tell you something of significance or importance, but you cannot base a legal verdict or ruling on what you see in a dream. You cannot change the sharia you cannot go to a court of law and say, oh, my relative came to me in the dream and said that that land is, it does not work that way. And it will not hold up even in any court, even in an Islamic court, and you are truthful. It doesn't matter. We do not base laws on dreams. Now, you see a deceased and the deceased says, you know, so-and-so, my son, my brother, whatnot, I have a debt that I owe to that person. Please repay my debt. This is an emotional issue. Feel free to pay the debt. But it is not something that you can go to a court of law and sue the other person for. You get my point here. This is not reason and logic. It is emotions. And no problem. No problem as long as these are within the realm of the sharia. No dream can make the haram halal. No dream can make the halal haram. No dream can make a wajib. No dream can be used as a legal evidence. But... 
If someone who you really, and of course it goes back to intuition. If you really feel that you have seen a relative and the relative is saying something that is very personal, very, very, you know, specific, it is up to you. You use your gut instinct whether I should act upon it or not as long as it is within the realm of the sharia and it is something that does not change the hukuk of other people, you may act upon that no problem. So the... Uh, the conclusion of this first part, we're going to go to a second part before Q&A, is that it is in fact possible for the souls of the living in their dreams to meet the souls of the dead. As for while in a state of wakefulness, this does not happen to us. Our Prophet was an exception because he went to Isra al Miraj, and that is a different scenario. We do not interact with the souls of the dead while we are awake. That does not happen. Only when we are asleep, because when we are asleep, our souls enter a realm that is one step before the barzakh. And the souls in the barzakh, if Allah wills, they can come out to this interim where our souls are in the dream. Because when we die, we do not enter the barzakh. Sorry, when we're in dreaming, not die. When we're dreaming, we do not enter the barzakh. We do not do that. Rather, our souls leave our bodies and they go to a, a realm or a land which is one step before the barzakh. And if Allah wills, you cannot dictate it. There's nothing you can do. A lot of people say, I want to see so-and-so in a dream. What can I do? Nothing. You can make dua to Allah. Other than that, nothing. There's, no, there's not some type of ritual that you follow to see somebody in your dream. It doesn't work that way. It is something that happens as a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to those whom He chooses. And if you don't see a deceased in a dream, don't read in. There's something wrong. No. There are many righteous who passed away and they don't come in people's dreams. It's يعني, Allah's qadr. Allah Azza wa Jal chooses what He wants. So if you see someone in a dream, alhamdulillah. And if you don't, alhamdulillah, don't read in um, either way. And as I said, these dreams cannot make the haram halal, nor can they be used in any court of law. But these are emotional dreams. And feel free to act upon them as long as the hukuk are being given from the deceased to somebody else, not the other way around, right? If the deceased comes and says, hey, take $100 from so-and-so, he owes me money. doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. But the other way around, if the haq is for the deceased and against somebody else, right? Now this is much more easier. Nobody's going to say no when you give $100 to somebody else. Say, oh, I just want to give this as a gift on behalf of my father. And I know in my own yeah, in the extended circle, what has happened that somebody passed away and he came to his son and said, you know, I owe so-and-so money. And he had money, but he just didn't write a will or something. So the son went to that person and the person said, how did you know? I plan to forgive I mean, I, when he passed away, and the son said, I saw him in a dream. And my father told me, give the money to so-and-so. This is like clearly, yani haq, you can tell. Because the guy who the money was owed to said, I'm not going to make a fuss. I'm not going to embarrass the family. You know, the person's died. He owes me the money. And the one who d died, that debt was on his dhimma. It was in his haq. And no doubt he was suffering as a result. Suffering meaning inconvenience. So Allah Azza wa allowed him to come in the dream to his son and say, look, I owe so-and-so money. Pay him that money. And the son just goes and pays the money and the man is shocked. These types of things, and they are mutawatir. They are well known. Now again, we don't base our sharia on it. But nonetheless, it is something that we can accept no problem. So with this, we then get to the final issue. Oh, by the way, so how long will this last? Will this, uh, the, the state of the barzakh last? The state of the barzakh will obviously last until the trumpet is blown. 
Okay, that is the ending of the state of the Barzakh. And this is, uh, of course, we have one section left I'm going to go to. But we're finishing off the actual Barzakh uh, within our theology. And I just want to say that uh, it's a good segue to then mention the next series that I'll be doing, which is obviously beginning with the trumpet being blown. And then we're going to have an intensive series about the actual Day of Judgment, inshaAllah ta'ala. And then after that, we're going to go to what? <laughs> Jannah inshallah, not Jahannam, okay? We will talk about Jahannam, but we will go to Jannah inshallah ta'ala uh, and talk about Jannah and then explain Jahannam. Now, before I open the floor for Q&A, exactly 20 minutes of, of lecture left inshallah. I decided I'll do something unique. I've never done this before, uh, but just inshallah something different. I went over in 10 lessons a fairly detailed this is a fairly detailed i would say this is advanced to intermediate advanced this is not a basic level we went over in a lot of detail and more advanced than this was is really going to a level that any only experts do we have done a very very thorough job of explaining what we know about barzakh from within the framework of the quran and the sunnah and inshallah in our next series beginning in january we'll then begin from post barzakh with the trumpet and there now what's left I decided to do something I've never done it before. Quickly, very briefly, go over what do other groups within Islam, but not within Sunni Islam, say about the Barzakh and the hereafter. Okay? What do the other firaq believe? Now, of course, we mentioned Sunni Islam, and as we're all aware, or some of us are aware, I should say not all of us, some of us are aware, that historically speaking, Sunnism has been Categorized into three very, very close strands the Athari, the Ash'ari, the Maturidi. And the fact of the matter is that these three strands, unfortunately, some people make the differences between them larger than they need to be. And they are really so similar to one another that this entire series indicates that. The Athari, Ash'ari, and Maturidi theologians have zero disagreements when it comes to. The issues of Barzakh and Akhirah and Qubur and Arwah. And throughout these 10 lessons, I was quoting all of these scholars interchangeably. Unfortunately, sometimes some people want to make these issues bigger than they are. And in reality, there is no need to do that. I can quote you Ghazali. I can quote you Ibn Taymiyyah. I can quote you Bayhaqi. I can quote you Al-Iji. I can quote you Al-Juwaini. And all of these scholars are saying the same thing. Because in reality, the differences between these strands are very, very minute. And they don't need to be made bigger than they are. So Alhamdulillah... All of mainstream Sunnism, all of classical Sunnism, because the advanced students do know, even within Sunnism, we have multiple mini strands, or I should say currents is better, not strands. But when it comes to these issues, by and large, the classical currents are all the same, zero ikhtilaf. How about non-Sunni movements? Let's begin with the Mu'tazila. The Mu'tazila have typically been the, the other from which Sunnism always derives its own. They refute Mu'tazila to then derive their own theology. And the claim was that the Mu'tazila deny Adab al-Qabr and they deny Na'im al-Qabr. This was the claim. The Mu'tazila deny these things. But in reality, when you go to their teachings and their writings, they do not deny Adab al-Qabr and Na'im al-Qabr. And this is one of those things that once again, when you look at the uh, inter- polemics of the groups a lot of times one group will smear the other and that smear or that stereotype will then last and nobody's going to then do the research and say what do they actually say 
And so what happened was that one or two of the early Mu'tazila, they did deny Adab al-Qabr, but mainstream Mu'tazila, they affirmed Adab al-Qabr. And the most famous theologian of the Mu'tazila, his name is Al-Qadi Abdul Jabbar, and he has written Al-Mughni and many, many, many writings. And Al-Qadi Abdul Jabbar affirms the Barzakh, he affirms Munkar al-Nakir, he affirms Adab al-Qabr and Na'im al-Qabr. So the Mu'tazila agree with all of these things just like the Sunnis do. The third group we're going to quickly do is the Ibadiyya. And the Ibadiyya are the only group that are still remnants of the ancient Kharijites, but they're not quite Kharijites anymore. Over the course of the last uh, uh, centuries, they have evolved. And the Ibadiyya are the official uh, theology of the country of Oman. And uh, they have slight differences in theology, but when it comes to, again, Adab uh, al-Qabr and Jannah and Jahannam they are exactly on the same wavelength as us no differences whatsoever so these are the non-Sunni and non-Shi'i groups the Mu'tazila and the uh, Ibadiyya now we get to the Shi'i groups Shi'ism is a trend that has many different strands within it many different strands and there's once upon a time there were many dozens of Shi'i strands in our times there's only a few of course the largest one when we say Shi'i most people only think of one primary group. These are the, the Shia of Iran and of Bahrain and others. These are called Twelver Shia. These are called Ithna Ashariya, Twelver Shia, because they believe in 12 Imams. And no doubt they have differences with us in many, many issues. However, once again, when it comes to Qiyamah and Barzakh and Na'im al-Qabr and Adab al-Qabr, generally speaking, they're on a very close wavelength with some very small issues as we will see. One of their theologians, Al-Tusi, who died 460, he writes, whatever the Prophet or the Imam tells us about the Akhirah, we must believe in it because according to them, a hadith, is not just what the Prophet ﷺ says. If an imam, they have a number of imams, if an imam says something, it takes the status of a hadith. It's the same to them because the imam speaks as if it is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if an imam says it, it becomes theology. So Al-Tusi writes, whatever the Prophet ﷺ or the imam tells us about the akhirah, we believe in it. Such as the hayat al-barzakh and the na'im al-qabr and the adab al-qabr and the questioning of the to Malakain and the Hawd of Ali radiallahu the Hawd of Ali we believe the Hawd belongs to the Prophet so we see some differences here that Ali or they, they say Amir al-Mu'mineen they called him that he will have the Hawd that he will give water to those who are thirsty and he goes on and on another of the great theologians is Shaykh al-Mufid who died 413, he writes that regarding the coming down of the two angels and their su'al of the people of the qabr, this is something we affirm. And there is ijma' of the Shia and the ashabul hadith, he means Sunnis. There is ijma' of the Shia and the Sunnis that this will happen. And we believe, now this is interesting and I don't know their evidence for this, but this is what they said. He said, we believe that the two angels that come to the righteous, their names are Mubashir and Bashir. And the two angels that come to the unrighteous, their names are, what? Wrong. Nakir and Nakir. What is the evidence? I don't know. But they say that the two angels that come to the righteous are different. Mubashir and Bashir. And the two angels that come to the kafir and the unrighteous are Nakir and uh, Nakir. And 
by and large, when it comes to uh, Qiyamah and Jannah and Jahannam, they are on the same wavelength as us that they affirm in heaven and hell. Now, obviously, who gets to heaven and hell in their theology is a huge controversy. And maybe, maybe we'll get there uh, when we get there. But the point is their conception of its existence is similar to ours. Now, all of these groups, they affirm an akhirah and a barzakh and adab and na'im al-qabr. And that is why, generally speaking, we consider them to be from within the fold of Islam. And I have said this very explicitly, even the first month I came with an extended Q&A, that these groups that I just mentioned, generally speaking, the ummah considers them within Islam, even if we disagree, sometimes very vehemently disagree with some of their theologies, but we don't expel them from Islam. And this is an indication, because here's the point, dear brothers and sisters, somebody to believe in two angels coming down, and to believe that there is hayat in the barzakh, it shows that they believe in what Allah and His Messenger have said. There is no other source of this knowledge. So deep down inside, there's something that they're believing there's an akhirah, and there's qiyamah, and there's heaven and hell, and there's going to be two angels, and there's su'al of the two angels. There is some level of iman that they're having in order for them to do that. And that is why, generally speaking, mainstream Islam has not considered these to be, they are within mainstream, when I say mainstream Islam, I mean they're within يعني, the ummah of Islam. We disagree with their theology and their issues of the Sahaba and whatnot, but they are not outside the fold of Islam generically. Now, let us go a little bit further than them. And now we begin to see stranger beliefs. Beliefs that, frankly, I don't even have time to explain to you because there are Totally different paradigm, totally different. And we begin with the next firqa of Shia Islam. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention uh, the, the Twelvers, they say this. The Zaydis uh, in, of Yemen, they're also called the Fivers. They also believe like the Mu'tazila and the Ibadi, so they're exactly the same. They believe in Munkar and Nakir, they believe in Su'al al Malakain, they believe in Hayab al So the Zaydis of Yemen, Yemen has around 40% of Yemen is Zaydi, and you know there's some issues and tensions that are political in nature. Theologically, the Zaydis are the closest of the Shia groups to Sunni Islam. And at one level, you can't tell, feel sorry for them because the Sunnis consider them Shia and the Twelvers consider them to be Sunni. So, la ilaha ula'i wa la ilaha ula'i, they're smack dab in the middle. Because they say, generally speaking, Abu Bakr and Umar are not the best, but they're good people. They're not bad people. So, they are okay, but Ali was better than them. To say this in Sunni Islam means you have begun Shia, tashayyur. So we look at them as the first stepping stone to tashayyur. And for the Twelvers, to say that Abu Bakr and Umar had a legitimate khilafah means you're a Sunni. You get the point here, right? So the Twelvers consider the Zaydis to be Sunni, and the Sunnis consider the Zaydis to be Shia. And so they are kind of sort of, la ilaha ula'i wa la ilaha ula'i, and that has given them a fierce independence, intellectual independence, they're known. And that's why Sun'ani and Shokan and others, they come from that strand of Islam. When it comes to these issues, they are 100% on the same wavelength as us. Heaven and hell, Munkar and Nakir, Adab al-Qabr, Na'im al-Qabr, all of it is exactly the same. And they're also called five or Shia. So we did five or Shia, we did 12 or Shia. Which one is left now? Seven or Shia. Okay, seven or Shia, also called Ismailiyah. Ismailiyah. Now, Ismailiyah are very, very complicated to discuss. And that is for many reasons. 
of them is because they themselves are divided into a number of groups. It's not just one group. And for the purpose of our quick class here, because I know there's to be extended Q&A, we will briefly say that Ismailis, for the purposes of our class, so they're more advanced than this, and if you take the class I'm giving next semester, by the way, free plug here, allow me to do that. I'm teaching a class at the Islamic Seminary of America. If you want to take that, we'll go into a lot of detail about various theologies and whatnot. For the purposes of this lecture, I'll say Ismailis are primarily three groups. Three groups. The first of them are the Dawudi Bohra. The second of them are the Nizari Agakhanis. And the third of them are the Duruz. Okay? These are all three existent groups. There were more that are no longer existent. But in our times, these three groups are existent. They're alive, they're well, they're healthy, physically speaking, and they are in the millions, all of them. The Agakhanis are around 15 million. So they are a good quantity. It's not trivial. The, 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 the Wudi Bohras are at least 2 million and the, the Ruzi, Duruz are at least 1 million. So these are large groups. All three of them emanate from the Ismaili strand of Shi'ism. Okay? All three of them are under the rubric of Ismaili Shi'ism. Now, Ismaili theology is something that is very atypical to Sunni to Sunni understanding. And I don't have the time, nor is this the place to go into those issues. I'm going to be very, very simplistic. So the advanced students that are online or in the audience, please forgive me. But sometimes when you teach something, you have to teach it in a simple manner. Generally speaking, Ismaili theology takes its origins from what we call Neoplatonic thought. Plato and then the Christian, original Christian authors who took the ideas of Plato and then regurgitated them and did, did their own uh, interpretations. And to be very simplistic, Ismailism believes that there's something called the active intellect, al-aql al-fa'al. And this active intellect, it emanates out like waves of the sun. It's power. And that emanation allows the creation of the world. And that creation goes through multiple uh, circles or multiple phases. They believe in nine different circles of, of existence. And we are at the very bottom, the very end of it. So, in a nutshell, their cosmology is radically different than our own. And their understanding of God is radically different than our own. And this is going to be shown now when it comes to their beliefs in the Akhirah and the Barzakh and Jannah and Jahannam. And that's why I'm saying I want you to understand that the groups that believe in an Akhirah, generally speaking, they're within Islam. We can understand them, right? They, 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 they believe in judgment and whatnot. Then you get to other groups, they're just very atypical from what we are accustomed to. And so let us begin with the ones that is the closest to, uh, to uh, uh, Sunnism and that is the Dawoodi Bohras because what happened was there was a, sch a schism between two brothers uh, of the Fatimid dynasty uh, Nizar was on one side and Dawood was on the other side and that schism made two big branches of Ismailis split up amongst them so on the one hand you had the Bohra and the other hand you had the Agakhanis and the Bohra represent original Ismailism which goes back to around 300, 400 uh, Hijrah. Original Ismaili doctrine. And the original Ismaili doctrine, even though it's a bit strange from our ears, nonetheless, there is within it Sharia and Salah and Zakah and Hajj and Saum and overall a belief in the Akhirah. It's not emphasized. Their books of theology are more interested in the level of the imams, but deep down inside they do affirm heaven and hell. 
and they do aim to get into Jannah. This is Buhri, Buhri, uh, Dawudi, uh, uh, Shi'ism, and that is why it is my own ishtihad, and Allah knows best, uh, the Buhra are within the fold of Islam because they believe in the kalima and they pray and they fast and they do sajda and they read Quran and they go for hajj and umrah and there is religiosity amongst them even though their beliefs are very strange but still, meaning from Sunni Islam I mean, and he compared them but still, there is level of religiosity amongst them and those people from India who interact with the Buhra you know this, uh, you know this from your own interactions with them however, what happened was that the Nizari branch the Agakhani branch, it took a sharp right or left turn. And one of their imams, uh, who is called Al-Hasan ala dhikrihi salam he essentially completely changed Ismaili theology, or I should say Agakhani theology, and he claimed that Qiyamah had taken place in his own time frame. And he said, we are now living on Jannah on earth. And he said, there is no sharia anymore like there was no sharia for Adam in Jannah. And because of this, the Nizari branch or the Aghani branch took a very different route. And they considered the sharia that we follow to be outdated and irrelevant. So there is no salah in that branch of Ismailism. There is no zakah the way that we do it. They pay some money to their imam. There is no fasting the way that we do it. There is no hajj, nothing of this nature. They do not pray. They do not lower their head yani five times a day, even though once every while they will, might do a sajda, one sajda. There is no rak'ah, there is no fatiha. It's not like that. And their jamaat khanas, they have rituals that they do in which they recite hymns in ancient Gujarati called jinans. They recite these jinans. And in these jinans, there is a notion of transmigration of souls. Do you know what that means? The soul goes from one, after death, the soul goes from one person to another person. There is no, there is no concept of heaven and hell anymore. The souls are transmigrating. And this is something that emanates from Gnostic religions. And we still have it in Buddhism and in Hinduism. Okay, that issue of reincarnation is called transmigration of the souls. It is not something that is coming directly from the Quran. However, this is found in the Jinans. However, Aga Khan III, who is the grandfather of the current Karim Aga Khan, Aga Khan III, he's the famous Aga Khan that was active when Pakistan was founded, you know, the one that was weighed in platinum and silver and gold, that guy. Um, his son was passed over. His son was married to Rita Hayworth. Aga Khan III's son lived a lifestyle that we would consider to be profligate and a playboy lifestyle. It's well known. And the, 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 the son was passed over. So Aga Khan III, the, for the first time in, in imami history, he passed over his living son and he made his grandson, who at the time was a junior at Harvard, in 1950 or something, okay? He was a 20-year-old, 20-year-old, 1-year-old kid at Harvard. He made his grandson the imam. And that current grandson is now Prince Karim, Sadruddin, the 49th imam or whatever. Uh, so that is the current imam. So the father was passed over because of the lifestyle, because of, and it's well known, you read his stories and, and he, it would not have been a disaster. So he gave it to the grandson. Aga Khan III 
was the one who codified modern Nizari Aga Khani thought. He was the one, so Aga Khanis used to wear the hijab. There was some semblance of religiosity. Of what, Aga Khan III was the one who said, no more hijab. Get rid of this. We're going to dress like and live like Europeans and whatnot. And salah and zakah was codified. Nothing like this. We don't do anything of this nature. So there is no salah and zakah. And amongst his changes or whatever, he was literally asked about reincarnation and heaven and hell. And he gave a very philosophical answer in which he essentially said that the soul moves from one sphere to another sphere until it will go and reunite with the highest intellect. Okay, so this is a very platonic theology which we don't quite understand in our Sunni paradigm. It has to do with Plato and his notion of the, of the active intellect and whatnot. And so he's basically in a very gentle way saying that the souls are supposed to rise up every time they come back, which is essentially reincarnation, until finally it reunites with the active intellect. But he didn't say it explicitly. It's very couched language. So he didn't want to cause too much of a, of a tension. So this is the Aga Khanis. Now we move to the third branch, and that is who? The Druz. And the Druz are the smallest of the uh, Ismaili uh, Shia. And they broke away uh, in the time of the Fatimid Khalifa, Al-Hakim bi Amrillah. And they considered Al-Hakim bi Amrillah to be God incarnate. They said Al-Hakim is a manifestation of God himself. And they don't call themselves Duruz, they call themselves Muwahidun. They call themselves the people of Tawheed. And they're around a million, uh, a million people. And the Duruz are one of the most secretive branches of Islam. And in fact, they don't even consider themselves to be Muslim, generally speaking, but they are emanating from uh, Islam. By the way, for the youngers in the audience, George Clooney's wife is from this branch, okay? That, uh, that, uh, that lady is from this uh, Druze branch. The elders have no clue. That's good, alhamdulillah, stay that way. Um, when it comes to the Akhirah, when it comes to the Akhirah, the Druze are very explicit. The Druze believe in reincarnation and transmigration. The Druze don't believe in heaven and hell. They don't believe in barzakh. They deny qiyamah. There is no such thing as qiyamah. If you are a good druz, you will be reincarnated in a better druz next time you, next time you come to life. Okay? And they believe as well that the soul cannot exist without the body. That as soon as the soul is taken away, it must enter a body. So as soon as somebody dies, the soul enters a baby somewhere in the world. Okay, that is their theology. And they also believe that the number of souls is finite. I don't know how they tally that up with human populations increasing. I don't know. They believe that the number of souls is finite. They also are pretty sexist in that if you were a male durzi, your reincarnation will be to another male durzi, up or down. Meaning if you're good or bad. Female durzi, female up or down. So the soul also has a gender. So the soul cannot go into the other gender. And uh, the Druze have a hierarchy of people. 85% of them are called Juhal. This is what they call themselves. I'm not calling them this. Juhal means they don't know what their religion is. And 15% are called, what are they called? Uqqal. Uqqal. People of intellect. Okay. Now this is interesting. The Druze as a point of theology, do not teach 85% of their people their theology. And they're content with that. 85% of their own people are content that 
We don't care. We don't know anything about our theology. We're just duruz. It's a cultural manifestation. Only 15% are initiated and taught, and then some of them become uqal, and uqal, they wear special turbans, and they have a special mustache that you, if you live in Lebanon, you know, they live in the Jabal Darz, the famous yani, uh, area over there. And of course, in our times, the Israeli government has adopted them, and they are very active in Israel, and they have a special branch of the IDF. The IDF? A special branch or a very elite branch, one of the most harsh against the Palestinians is the Duruz. And they are enemies of, yani, uh, there's a lot of animosity between Duruz and between the uh, Sunnis. The point is from their perspective, this notion of souls, the goal is to keep on doing a good life so that you become higher and higher until you're resurrected in the Uqal. And then within the Uqal, they have a hierarchy and then there's the ultimate Sheikh, the big guy. And then if you get to that level and you live a good life, then your soul will be reunited with the active intellect, which is essentially Ismaili theology, okay? And the active intellect is essentially God himself, okay? So this is the, this is the uh, notion of the Duruz. Now the final group that we're going to do, any group that's left, anybody knows which group is left? Huh? Which group is that? That's what we're going to come to. Which group is left now? Huh? Nah, I'm not caring about that group. They don't even deserve a mention. Aslan. I'm not even. So the, the, the group that is left of classical Islam that we haven't done, and that will be our final group before we open up for Q&A, is the group known as the Alawis or the uh, Nusaydis. The Alawis or the Nusaydis. And um, the Alawis or Nusaydis, this is a group that a lot of people mistakenly lump with Ismaili Islam. And this is a big error. The Nusayris have nothing to do with Ismailism as a trend. They are affected by and they have imported Ismaili doctrines. But the origin of the Nusayris is actually Twelver Shi'ism, not Ismailism. The origin of the Nusayris is Twelver Shi'ism. Why? Because when the 11th Imam died, Al-Hassan Al-Askari, of course, history and Everybody except for the 12 Shia believed that the 11th Imam did not have a child, right? This is well known in history that the belief of historians and the belief of uh, everybody other than 12 Shia is that Al-Hasan Al-Askari died as a young man without getting married and he didn't have any concubine, he didn't have any slave girl that's, you know, of course it's halal to have a concubine, it's halal to get married. He didn't get married and he died without a child. What are you going to do when the Imam dies without a child? The biggest crisis of original Shi'i Islam was the death of the 11th Imam without a son. Now, we believe, and this is our belief, and I say this without disrespect, because I never want to disrespect a group that bows its head to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I never want to do that. And I never want to teach something that will inspire hatred. I disagree with 12-er theology, and I'm Sunni, but I don't see the point in fanning the fuels of hatred and fire. That's not what we do. So I'm speaking factually. We Sunnis believe Hassan al-Askari died childless. The 12 Shias believe that he had a secret concubine. And this concubine was pregnant and she was smuggled out and she gave birth in a cave uh, in, in Iraq, in Samurra. And that secret child was none other than Imam Mahdi. And the Imam Mahdi is therefore hidden and he has not been seen yani, for over uh, 1,000 something years. And so they believe the 12th Imam is Imam al-Ghaib. 
because he was never seen and he's still alive, he's still around to this day, and he's still hadir and This is the Hazar Nazir, this is where it comes from, not from the other group. So they believe that the Imam is everywhere and nowhere, that he can be wherever he wants to be. Now, when the 11th Imam died, Hassan al-Askari, at least 15 groups formed, trying to figure out what to do with the death of Hassan al-Askari, because it's a theological crisis. Of all those groups, only two remain. One of them is the bulk of Shi'ism, that's 12 or Shi'ism. And why it became the bulk? It goes back to the, uh, the Babawais and the, the Buwayhids, excuse me, the Buwayhid dynasty and whatnot, that's the Buwayhid Vizirat, that's besides the point. One small splinter group remained, and that is the Nusayris. The Nusayris are perhaps the smallest of the classical sects of Islam. And they were called Nusaydis throughout their entire history after uh, uh, Ibn Nusayr, who was their founder and the student of Hassan al-Askari. This man, uh, Nusayr, was a student of Hassan al-Askari and he then began preaching a very different uh, theology. And uh, to be brutally honest, and I, I don't mind being a little bit harsh with those groups because they, they are not with, within Islam. Obviously, we understand Duruz and we believe the Nizadis and the uh, Nusayris, they are not really considered to be Muslim. When you do not bow your head down to Allah, when there is no Salah, there is no Quran, there is no Dhikr, there is no Ramadan, then there is no Islam. The other groups we mentioned, they have all of these things. But these final groups, nothing. And the Nusayris are, as we know now, because the, the, as you should all know, the, the people in charge of Syria, they are from this branch. Only around 100 years ago, they began calling themselves Alawis. This term was unknown in Islamic history. The term Alawi was unknown in Islamic history. They only invented this term. Why? Because they wanted to get some type of uh, uh, recognition with the Muslims because Ali and Alawi sounds better than Nusayri. We are to do with, with Ali. And they have a very bizarre trinity. Trinity. They believe in uh, a trinity that is, uh, again, this is not the time to get to that. I, I kid you not. I have taught advanced classes about these things. Without exaggeration, the students get a headache when I try to explain their theology. It's so bizarre from what we are used to. And frankly, they themselves don't know their theology. Out of all of the groups of Islam, perhaps this group is the most secretive. They do not allow the publication of their own books. To get access to their original books, it is something that is almost impossible. And in fact, the first uh, uh, famous person to expose this group uh, was somebody from within their own camp by the name of Suleiman al-Afandi around 150 years ago. He became a Christian and he was one of their shuyukh. And when he became a Christian, he wrote an expose of the Nusaydis and he called it Al-Baqura As-Sulaymaniyya. And this was published and he explained for the first time in detail the theology and the psychology and the history of the Nusaydis and he mentioned some very, very uh, outrageous things which we now know to be true. They 
the Nusaydis coaxed him back. They bribed him. They promised to protect him. They said, we forgive you, what not, because he went into exile uh, outside of Lebanon. They brought him back, the Syria, excuse me. They brought him back and they burnt him alive. They cut him up to pieces and they completely yani, uh, exterminated his body and what not to make an example. This is what's going to happen when you expose our, uh, our uh, theology. Uh, I have a copy of the Bakuru Suleimania, by the way, inshallah, when I teach the class, we will go over this, these issues of what they believe. Now, uh, what do they believe? So they believe, like the Duruz, in the transmigration of the souls. However, they go even beyond this, and it is essentially just like Buddhist and Hindu beliefs. At least the Duruz, they believe the human soul will enter another human body. As for the Alawis or the Nusaydis, we should call them, they believe the soul can enter anything, even animals, even plants and rocks and stones, which is essentially the belief of some yani, karmic, dharmic uh, religions as well. So the belief of the Nusaydis, there is no heaven and hell, there is no resurrection, there is no qiyamah. The soul if it was a good entity, will go to a higher level, and if it was a bad entity, it will go to a lower level until it will break away from the chain of humanity. If it is a good person, eventually it will become a part of the divine nur, nuri ilahi. And the soul will become God then. And that is why amongst the masses of the Nusaydis, and I know this for a fact, I've spoken with a number of them, they believe, this is a masses thing, that when the thunder is, is, is heard This is like the gods speaking Or the, the ruh of the believers That have become gods now right? So the ruh becomes the god himself So the goal is the ruh is going to rise up Until it becomes the nuri ilahi And this is a belief that has nothing to do with Islam And that's why their, their understanding in this world as well Is so bizarre and weird Now, why did I mention this, this tangent About all these groups? Believe it or not to actually bring about a sense of unity with the groups that actually believe in Qiyamah. Because when you compare and contrast these last three groups with the first five or six, you can see a clear demarcation. Can you not? And this demarcation is the demarcation of Iman and Kufr. It's as simple as that. No matter what you want to say about the beliefs of the first few groups, at least they believe in Jannah and Jahannam and Qiyamah and Hisab and Mizan and Adabul and Naimul Qabr and whatnot. And anybody who's going to believe in this Ilm al Ghaib, because it's Ilm al Ghaib, anybody who's going to believe in this, where are they getting that from? From Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And therefore, those other groups might have some major errors and mistakes. I'm not excusing that. But in the end of the day, in my humble opinion, and this is the position of the vast majority of ulama, anyone who says, La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah, and affirms the general issues of Tawheed and Iman and Risala and Akhirah, generally speaking, they're within Islam. And these other last groups that we have done, they don't do that. Therefore, they're outside the fold of Islam. Jayid. With this, inshallah ta'ala, we conclude by a call for action and then we open the floor for Q&A. And we also have people that are asking from overseas as well, so we'll give them some time. The call for action is as follows. These 10 lessons, these 10 lectures that we've given about the barzakh, I want you to really think long and hard. What is the impact of this knowledge on our lives? Because... Me and you will be a part of that world very soon. If not tomorrow, day after tomorrow, maybe even today. We will enter this world very soon. Every single 
ancestor of mine and yours from the time of Adam is right now in the Barzakh. And every single child of ours that is born or will be born until Qiyamah will enter that Barzakh. It is an inevitable reality. وَمِنْ وَرَائِهِمْ بَرْزَخٌ إِلَى يَوْمِ يُبْعَثُونَ In front of them is that Barzakh until the day they are resurrected. My goal, my purpose with this knowledge isn't just so that it is something abstract that we just ponder over and life goes on. The goal is that if we truly believe in the Barzakh, and inshallah all of us do, that we make sure that we get the best of the Barzakh, that we make sure that we are interacting with the Anbiya and the Salihin and the Shuhada and the Siddiqeen, that we make sure that our Qabr is a rawda min riyad al-jannah and not of the places of Jahannam. That we make sure that the malaika of rahmah come and they take us out gently and they make us covered up with the fragrances of Jannah, with the hanut of Jannah, with the kafur of Jannah. That's what we want. We don't want the opposite. So this knowledge that we've studied in these 10 lessons, it should bring about a change in our attitude, in our lifestyles. We should prepare for Malakul Maut. We should prepare for Barzakh. We should prepare for the Qabr. As our Prophet wasallam said, I have not seen anything except that the Qabr is more terrifying for me than anything I've seen. Al-Qabr is more terrifying and every one of us is going to be in that state. So the goal of this knowledge that we have, and this is why Allah and His Messenger have told us the goal of this knowledge is that it impacts us so that we prepare for that time and to also realize that as our Prophet ﷺ said, Al-Qabru awwalu manazilin min manazil al-akhirah. The Qabr is the first manzila from all the, the manazil al-akhirah. If the first manzila is good, the rest of the manazil will be good. And if the first manzila was not good, then the rest will be worse than that. So we need to prepare so that insha'Allah ta'ala, we have the best of the best at the time of our debts and what will happen afterwards. And with this, we open the floor insha'Allah ta'ala for Q&A. And I'll begin with... Some, we have, alhamdulillah, some live uh, questions here. So uh, our uh, brother says that uh, from Chicago, that what if you heard the voice of the Prophet wasallam? Is shaitan forbidden from imitating his voice or only his uh, form? This is a good question. Uh, I do not know of anybody who has just heard the voice of the Prophet wasallam, and I don't know the answer to this question, to be honest, because the hadith says, فَإِنَّهُ لَا يُمَثَّلُ بِي He doesn't take my mithil. And my mithil could generally be his form. However, the voice is also a mithil. To this question, I will say, la adri. I don't know the answer to this question. Uh, the next question we have is that uh, if the good people go to sleep in the grave and they will wake up on the day of judgment by saying, who woke us up? How, uh, that man ba'atha How can they be in the barzakh awaiting the trumpet? So we mentioned, so the question is as follows. Let me rephrase it. Will the souls of the righteous go to sleep or will they be awake? And I mentioned this, I think, four or five lessons ago, that in reality we do not know. There is one and only one narration in which the soul is told, go ahead and sleep and it will fall into a sleep until the day of judgment. 
How do we reconcile this with the hadith I just mentioned, that they're going to be interacting with the people who come? This is from the Ilm al-Ghayb. Allah knows best. If someone were to say, hypothetically, that they are active for a time frame such that the people whom they knew and loved, it is that time from when they're going to come back. Because after a hundred years, nobody that you knew in this dunya is going to be there now. You know, it's gone now. If they are active for a time frame and then they are told to go to sleep. And this will also solve the issue of how can some people live longer than others because some people will be put into that trance until the day of judgment. In the end of the day, we do not know and it is a different paradigm. And our minds cannot understand the time and how time takes place in the barzakh. But looking at the evidences, a possible interpretation is what I have said. That they will be active for a period of time from our dunya's perspective. And then after that time frame, whenever Allah Azza wa wills, and perhaps, perhaps, the more iman they have, the more active they will be. Hence, the shaheed will always be alive. And the prophets are alive in their graves. So perhaps to the level of their iman, they shall remain active as well in the barzakh before they are told to go to sleep. And this is for the righteous. As for the unrighteous, we know that they will be punished until the uh, barzakh happens and Allah Azza wa until the uh, trumpet is blown and Allah knows. But any questions from the audience? Because I want to alternate. Yes, Bismillah. So the brother is saying that if I do something, uh, anything, monetary, hajj, umrah, can I do it on behalf of one person or must, or must I do it on behalf of one person or can I uh, uh, give it in portions and shares? So Ibn al-Qayyim mentions this explicitly in others and that is that you can do whatever you want because Ibn al-Qayyim's position is the thawab of the deed, it is yours. And you have the right to credit whomever you want. However, just like if you have $100 and you credit it to two people versus credit it to one person, is there not a difference? Similarly, if you have one hajj and you credit it to two people, that is not the same as crediting it to one person. But it is allowed to do that. No problems there. You may do it, but I just said, when you have one, whatever it is, and you do it, and it's not a problem to do, right? It's better than nothing, much better than nothing. It is allowed to do. Sisters, any questions? Yes, go ahead. And the what? So the sister is saying, if we see a, a deceased in the dream and they are in a good place, they're in a good place, inshallah ta'ala, this is a positive sign. And we read into that and it is a part of our iman to interpret positive dreams positively. We're going to come to it inshallah in one of our lectures. It is not a part of our iman to read into negative dreams, bad dreams, nightmares. We don't think too much about them because they are not from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Good dreams are from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when we see a deceased happy, when we see a deceased in a good state, when we see a deceased you know, enjoying, we take this as a positive sign that inshallah ta'ala they're in a good state. And the opposite, we just discard it. And if we want to do some dhikr and good deeds and whatnot for that person, that is also good. But we don't read in and we don't tell other people about any negative dreams. We have a person from 
uh, online. Uh, can you tell us what the Jews and the Christians believe about the Barzakh? That is a whole lecture altogether. As for the Yehud, there is a lot of discussion amongst them. In fact, by and large, many of them don't even believe in Qiyamah anymore. They don't believe in an actual physical resurrection. So the modern movements, even many of the Orthodox, they don't necessarily believe in an actual Qiyamah that's going to take place. And so they have gone away from the beliefs of their uh, earlier uh, ancestors. And as for the Christians, that is depending on which firqa and group that you ask. They have a whole diversity of views. Some of them do affirm uh, a type of barzakh a type of purgatory, and others uh, do not do that. And uh, maybe in a lecture we'll go over that, inshallah. Uh, question over here. Uh, is it possible to interact with uh, the prophets in the barzakh? The other prophets, I think he's asking. Because we said you can interact with the Prophet Muhammad As for the other prophets, why not? It is possible to. And it is mentioned that Imam al-Bukhari's mother saw Ibrahim salam in a dream. And Ibrahim السلام, was the one who told Imam al-Bukhari's mother about certain things. So this is something that can happen, no problem. Uh, question that, what should we do if we see somebody who's deceased telling us that they're being punished in the qabr? Allah musta'an, this is a very terrifying thing. We ask Allah's يعني, mercy and rahmah. Firstly, don't tell anybody the details of these dreams. We are not supposed to tell bad dreams to anybody secondly if you feel that you should do something on their behalf feel free to do that excellent and if you want to tell the family and friends of that person generic things you know let's do something on their behalf without telling the details because we do not tell the details it is possible it is possible that this person is somehow Allah is allowing him or her to reach out for help for good deeds. It's possible. And it is also possible that shaitan is playing with you. We will not know. Now, inshallah, we hope that there's a gut instinct, by the way, right? We hope this because there is a hadith. Fear the intuition of the believer because the intuition of the believer is true. We would hope that the righteous. If shaitan wants to deceive, the righteous is going to feel, eh, something is not right here. This is not a real dream. That is haqq. And if it is an actual relative that is reaching out for help, Allah is going to allow that person, that the person will feel, you know what, I should do something. So that is based on intuition. But once again, you cannot base law on intuition. You cannot base an actual verdict on how you feel. You can personally do something, no problem. But that's not something that you can uh, uh, make it into law. Any questions from our brothers here? Bismillah, go ahead. The person died and lives in debt. And it's not been paid like a double like you buy a house. If I die and children are in debt for 30 years, the question is about debt. And paying off of the debt. So uh, when it comes uh, when it comes to the issue of debt, generally speaking, if a person was careless in taking debts and did not take adequate precautions and was simply wanting money from people for the sake of money and lived a careless life, that person will be susceptible to be punished the punishment of debt. However, if a person is being cautious and only takes a debt when he or she needs to and tries one's best, and as Allah says, Allah knows your niyyah, 
Allah knows what you're trying to do. So the one who takes adequate precautions and the one who was forced into a debt, inshallah, that person is not sinful per se. Nonetheless, we know that debt is something that we should try our best to get out of. And as for the issue that you mentioned, obviously, the house is collateral and mortgage. So aslan, if that needs to be done, then that will be sold and it will be given back. Inshallah. Ta'ala. Not that I'm saying it's halal or haram, I'm just saying that's a separate issue altogether. Sisters, any questions? Just go ahead. Bismillah. What did I say about that? Okay, so our sister is saying that uh, can I talk a little bit more about the issue of uh, Quran Khanis? As I said in our last uh, uh, lecture, that the vast majority of classical ulama and scholars, and even in our times, pretty much all of the strands of Islam, they allow the gifting of good deeds to the deceased and reciting the Qur'an is a good deed. So it can be gifted to the deceased. That having been said, uh, the issue comes about uh, encouraging the specifics of what day and what procedure and what methodology. And uh, I have given a more detailed lecture online. Uh, it is called the reality of bid'ah. And I go over the various definitions of bid'ah in the various schools of Islam. And in that lecture you will see some schools were a bit stricter than others. And some schools said to specify the unspecified is a type of bid'ah. So if you're supposed to gift the Qur'an, that's fine. But to say on the 40th day you should read 40 pages for 40 minutes. I'm just giving an example. Okay, what have you done? You have specified the unspecified. Okay, and they say that this is now opening up a can of worms, a Pandora's box. It's a slippery slope. And the other school says, if you do this for logistical reasons, if you just do this for, and you understand that this is not from Allah and His Messenger, and you just do it for something to make it easier for the people, in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with doing it. And this is another strand of Islam as well. So because of this tension, you will find some people say, even those that said you may gift the Qur'an to the deceased, some of them said you should not do actual Qur'an khanis. Because what happens in a Qur'an khani? You will specify a time and a date and a place and a location and you will all pass out one juz and whatnot and do that. And the other group is going to say, so what? It's better than nothing. And it's an incentive to get the people together and read a juice for the deceased. You understand what I'm saying here? And in that lecture, I went into a lot more academic detail. And I simply said, each paradigm has its proponents and its pros and cons. And I left it at that. I want to be very clear here. I don't consider it something to be bad or evil. At the same time, I am sympathetic to this issue of opening this door. And people start thinking things to be sunnah that might just be mubah, right? And this is one such example. The Prophet ﷺ never explicitly said, read the Qur'an for the deceased. I believe it is allowed, but he never did that. Without a doubt, giving charity for the deceased is better. Sadaqa Jariyah is better. Hajj and Umrah is the best. 
But the perception that the Muslim masses have is what? Quran Khani is the best. And see, this is what the other group says, like, guys, when you start doing something that isn't exactly sunnah, it comes at the cost of an actual sunnah. You guys following this point? Right? And I sympathize with that. At the same time, it's not wrong per se as long as the people know that this is not something the Prophet explicitly did because the other group is saying, and again, Ibn al-Qayyim is the one who said this, that the concept of gifting the Prophet allowed. And therefore, if he allowed all of these lists, we went over so many things, if somebody had asked him, can I read the Quran? He would have also said yes, because he's saying yes to everything. So the concept is that it is all permissible, but now you're going to put all of these specific conditions, and then people might not understand that actually this is not explicitly in Islam. So we open up a Pandora's box, and so I'm trying to be, along with Dan, I'm trying to be gentle on both sides. That's really what I'm trying. And I'm trying to say, no, I'm, I am saying, both of these groups need to stop hating on the other side that much. They both have an element of legitimacy to them. And the same controversy goes for the Mawlid and anti-Mawlid camps, by the way. Because it's the same thing, to specify the unspecified. My position is, both of these groups need to chill. They both have a legitimate paradigm that they're coming from. Even if, maybe because of my last 20 years, maybe it's my own bias, I don't know. Deep down inside, my sympathies are still somewhat towards the more stricter side because I am worried about the slippery slope. I'm worried about this, you know. At the same time, this doesn't mean that the other group is evil or bad. Like I said, if some people are coming together to read the Qur'an, I mean, what's wrong with reading the Qur'an? And what else do you expect people to do who are emotionally traumatized? They've lost a dead person, whatnot. They want to do something. So, our culture has organized Quran Khanis. You express communal grief. Believe it or not, psycho psychologically therapeutic. And in my humble opinion, I understand that. No problem. It, it has a point. So, I neither want to encourage, but at the same time, I'm not really discouraging. So I'm just trying to be very neutral here. I hope, I hope you're in. That's all I can say. I hope this is clear, inshallah. Other final questions? Bismillah. Yes, go ahead. We had mentioned this earlier. The brother is saying that why is Allah specifically mentioning that don't uh, consider uh, the shaheed to be dead? They are alive with Allah. Isn't everyone alive? We mentioned, I mentioned this in the, in the early lectures, the hayat al-barzakh is of different categories. The highest category is the hayat of the prophets. The life of the prophets. And underneath that is the life of the shaheed. And then I just said, perhaps... Lower levels, they might even go into a trance after a while because some hadith mentioned gnome to the deceased as well. So the awareness and the life is of different levels and the shaheed's level is much higher than that of the average righteous. That's the point of this, of this ayah, inshallah. Yes, final question, inshallah, because we have too much. Final question, go ahead.
So this question I answered in a lot of detail the first month I was here that should we call ourselves Sunnis or not? It's actually in the epic Q&A. If you listen to it, I have given a long lecture about this. Uh, it's a very good question. It's coming from a point of love that why do we call ourselves anything? And it's a nice question. And we wish we didn't have to. And it's not wajib to. Nobody's saying, I didn't, I'm not saying it's wajib. In the end of the day, historically, the ummah has differed into thousands of different interpretations. And for practical purposes, you know, when you want to marry your son and daughter, you want to make sure they're marrying somebody of a similar mindset. Just for harmony. Forget haram and halal. Birds of a feather flock together. Right? Forget haram and halal. A marriage will succeed when there is rapport between husband and wife. Right? So if husband and wife have radically different views about theology, about iman and akhir, what are you going to do? You're going to quiz them about the whole arkan al-iman? Or you're going to say, which, generally, which group do you belong to? It comes in handy. There's times when it comes in handy. Right? So these labels can be divisive, and that's wrong. And these labels can be informative and educational. And that's the point that we're trying to do. And I've given a longer answer to this, inshallah, in an early lecture. And uh, yeah, I have to, okay. Uh, I can't say no to our elderly. Explain the Mu'tazila group. <laughs> the Mu'tazila were one of the first groups uh, to rise in early Islam. And they were the ones who persecuted Imam Ahmad and imprisoned him. Uh, and they claim that the Qur'an is created and Imam Ahmad said the Qur'an is uncreated. And the Mu'tazila reinterpreted the attributes of Allah and most significantly, they denied Qadr. They said, we don't believe that Allah controls the creation. They said Allah knows the future, He doesn't control the future. He doesn't will the future, He knows the future. So what happens, we do, not Allah does. So they said, we do our deeds, Allah does not have anything to do with our actions. Because they were purely Hellenistic Greek and they said, if Allah, quote unquote, forced us to do it and then rewarded and punished us, this would be unjust on Allah's part. So Allah knows, but Allah does not control. Man creates his or her own deeds. And the Ahl Sunnah said, one of the pillars of Iman is Qadr. Everything happens with Qadr. Not a leaf falls except that Allah wills it. And so many hadith about Qadr. So the main difference between Mu'tazila and Sunnis is the issue of Qadr. As I said, when it comes to Akhirah, and barzakh and hayatana it is essentially the same as ours and that's why even if we disagree it's wrong to deny qadr but there's still muslims within islam and with this inshallah i will uh, i'm taking a trip for umrah you know, i'll be back inshallah early january and we will then inshallah start our new series which will begin with the trumpet being blown not the actual trumpet but we're going to talk about the trumpet uh, being blown until then may allah azza wa jalla protect me and you and allow us to benefit from this knowledge wa akhiru da'wana alhamdulillahil alamin wa sallallahu alayhi wa baraka ala muhammad wa ali wa sahbihi ajma'in la yazalu alkhayr hayyan la yazal inna fid dunya salaman wa dhilal أخبر الأيام أنها في وصال قم بنا وانظر لآيات الجمال قم بنا وانظر لآيات الجمال